This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. This is not just a financial literacy issue. There are regulatory issues, whether it's in the housing market, the payday lending industry, that need addressing, that prevent people from being exploited. Because sometimes, no matter how much information you give them, they're not equipped to make the right choices. And what we've all learned is there are bad people in our world that'll take advantage of them. And we need a legal system and a regulatory system that's gonna protect them. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. What's up, everybody? Happy Monday. I hope you and yours are blessed. This is Nate Bowling, host of the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by Libro FM. Today, I'm excited to have a conversation with you all about personal finance and financial literacy. We're going to talk about the importance of personal finance, both for adults and also financial literacy in K-12. And I want to ground this conversation a little bit in my own biography so you understand why I'm having this conversation with you all and why I think it's important. I am a privileged person. I am aware of that. I was very lucky to grow up with a loving mother, a loving father who was in my life, and a loving stepfather in my home. And all three of them endowed me with little nuggets of personal finance wisdom that have helped me make good choices along the way. My mother talked about home ownership and why it was important and how when you are a homeowner and you're making a mortgage payment, you are basically building equity in the home that you can use that equity for other financial things you want to later on in life. My father talked to me about the importance of paying yourself first and saving for retirement so you don't have to work yourself to the, to the nub and you can make uh, choices later on in life without having to uh, be held hostage by finance. And based on that advice, I feel like I've made some choices that have been beneficial to me. Uh, my wife and I own, own a home in Tacoma uh, that we intend to return to one day. And when I got my first job back in 1998, oh, I'm old. Uh, at UPS at 3.30 in the morning, ooh, that's early, uh, make a 9.50 an hour. Um, I signed up for a 401k that put 15% in retirement and I learned to live off the rest. And what I've done is, is in every job I've had, I've done the same thing. And I've been blessed that I haven't had any major health incidents or anything, uh, like my house didn't burn down where like I had a financial crisis. And so that has allowed me to, 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 to save for retirement so that like when I think I'm done teaching, I can make choices. That's privilege. And I understand that's privilege. But here's the thing. At the same time, if we look online, we see that there's an entire like cadre of these personal finance gurus who are popping up right now and making tons of money teaching, frankly, adults and also young people things they should be learning in school. And so my guests today are two people who are passionate about personal finance in K-12, and they're going to come on the show and talk about what's happening in personal finance around the country, what should be happening in personal finance, and then also their takes on some of the personal finance gurus out there. There's some Dave Ramsey fire if you are a person who is attuned for that. So my guests, first off, we have Dr. Abdullah Albarani. 
He is a professor at Northern Kentucky University, and he basically runs a program that educates teachers about how to teach personal finance. My other guest is a man named Brian Page. He's an award-winning educator. He was a Milken Award winner from the state of Ohio. Uh, you may recall that I won the Milken Award in Washington State back in 2014. He's now based in Georgia and working for a company called NextGen Personal Finance. Uh, these two gentlemen care a lot about this issue, and they're going to come on and give their points of views and their stories. So uh, with that, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Let's go now to Abdullah and to Brian. All right, fellas, uh, welcome to the show. So Thanks I'm for really having us. Yeah, no, I'm really excited. I'm if, okay. If people can hear it, I'm excited for this conversation. This is a, a topic that like I've always had thoughts about and I can feel myself becoming more passionate about uh, kind of watching the world. Uh, I just wonder, before we even get into like the business of the conversation, I'm just really curious, what has your each year COVID adventure been like uh, in the, over the last year? Brian, you're in Georgia, right? Uh, I am now. Yeah. We could call it an adventure. Looking backward, um, I'm, I'm glad that we we made it through. At least we're almost through COVID. Uh, my wife decided to um, take advantage of a, of a promotion and that uh, led to us moving to Atlanta, Georgia from Cincinnati. And, um, and that really, that was why um, I decided to leave the classroom. I loved teaching uh, and I also love next-gen personal finance. It's a, you know, it's a a sincere and altruistic um, organization devoted toward financial literacy. So I thought, okay, this is, this is the time it's right. It's um, the pieces have come together. And so uh, she accepts the job. And then a week later we start seeing in the news what's going on with COVID around the world. And so we sell our house pretty quickly and we could not find another house to buy because uh, the supply was so minimal because of COVID. People were scared to sell at that time. So uh, we ended up moving to one community, Decatur, which we loved. And um, we put down money on uh, offers on 11 different houses, um, all of which every single one we got into bidding wars with and almost every one it was pre-market and we lost 11 houses of the 11 three of them fell through while in contract um, so then we had to move communities again on the very final day we could to enroll them in a different school so now my middle school kids were um, going to a new school uh, initially online and then in person and they don't know what any of their friends look like from the nose down because they wear masks. And in the midst of that, um, in my first week of, of working with NextGen was the George Floyd murder. And our organization um, believes strongly that financial literacy is an important component to social justice. Um, so it was a somber moment, but at the same time, it felt good to be a part of an organization that wasn't going to just send a tweet. Um, we decided at that moment, um, we're going to do something about it. And that's when we announced our $3 million um, fee grant initiative. Awesome. That's awesome. Abdullah, how about you? How's your, your adventure been? Uh, th that's always a loaded question. When did COVID adventure actually start is something that I always ask myself. Uh, the, the, the way I look at it, it started for me in February. Uh, I was in Dublin, Ireland uh, last year on sabbatical, and I was supposed to be presenting in Oman, uh, right across the border from, from where you are. And um, the, 
I was presenting to policymakers in Oman. I flew to Oman a couple of weeks early to spend time with my family, and the numbers were just increasing across the world, or the you know that part of the world. The U.S. had you know at this point still oblivious to it. And um, on March 12th, I was supposed to present on March 12th. On March 8th, Oman started talking about maybe closing airports, and on March 12th, they closed airports. And I thought it was going to be like a two-week thing, right? Two weeks, airports will open. I'll go back to Dublin, or actually, at that time, I was supposed to fly to Lexington, Kentucky, for for a workshop I was hosting here. And in Oman, they kept on saying airports will open tomorrow. They'll open tomorrow. Well, this went on until October one, right? So between March twelfth to October one, I'm living on day by day decision making. Um, and you know, one thing that happened during that time—I mean, we've all struggled because of COVID, and you know, we've lost family members, and it, it's been difficult. Um, one thing that has happened is this transition to online education. And as an educator and a person that believes in access and making sure that our students receive the content in the best format, um, I use this time to challenge myself to find different ways of communicating with uh, the general public with respect to economics and financial literacy education. So I've spun you know a YouTube channel from it, um, and it's increased my exposure worldwide. So, you know, I, I always tell my students this, with uh, challenges, there's always opportunities. Um, sometimes we're in the midst of it, we don't see it, but as soon as we lift our heads up, you know, you could see um, a whole new economy, a whole new world coming out of this. The question now is, uh, how do we move forward? Who's going to innovate? Who's going to be front runners in, um, in the world, uh, from in my world of education and the, uh, you know, financial literacy education perspective? That's awesome. I, it's the financial literacy conversation to me is important because I feel like some folks run away from this conversation because they think that there's some sort of like political lens to it or they have concerns about talking about class. And what you end up having is basically students who uh, are coming from lower income families don't get the education and grounding they need in finances and they get taken advantage of. And so one of the things I want to do before we get to the K-12 conversation and education conversation is kind of talk to you all about your own experiences. So I'm wondering, what is the best piece of financial advice that you got that you actually took? And or is there a piece of financial advice that you got that you didn't take that you wish you had taken? Uh, Brian, how about you first? Sure. Yeah, I, I would say um, the, if I could go backwards, I would have probably bought Apple and Netflix um, <laughs> really early on and dumped my life savings into it. But uh, yeah, the, the best advice that, that my dad ever gave me was um, it was it was really more of a, of a lesson. Uh, you know, growing up, we my, my father was in the rental industry um, because he, he had to be. He was a computer engineer um, and he, he didn't have money growing up. He finished college uh, living in a railroad car uh, and he took his savings and bought his first investment property. It was a mobile home. And then over time, he, he continued to build um, his rental property business. And, you know, growing up, we had when I say junk cars, man, it, it like. I'm not exaggerating. Like the, the the gas gauge didn't work, the speedometer didn't work. Like you could literally lift the carpet and look at the road driving. I mean, it was it was insane. Um, and I asked my father, like, why did you do that? My freshman year in college, because I knew by that time we at least had the money to drive a decent car. And he he told me, look, you know, 
I, I want you just to get a calculator and, and just tell me, what do you think a car payment would be um, for an average car? And, and I told him, and he's like, well, what about insurance for you? And I told him, I'm like, well, take that times 12 months. And I did. And he's like, well, take that times 20 years. And, and I did. And obviously, it was a really big number. Um, and he said, you know, do you get it? And I'm like, no. And he's like, you know, that number that's your college education. And there was no way in hell my kid was going to live in a railroad car like I had to, to be able to afford to go to college. And it was at that moment I realized that, you know, that money is really a tool that we can provide to the things and the people we love the most. And that if we can just help kids understand um, how, how our financial system works and give them the behavior tricks along the way to make their money work for them in a way that brings them joy and happiness, that I'll be fulfilled personally. And I think as a society, we'll be a hell of a lot happier. Abdullah, how about you? It, it goes to what uh, Brian just said, uh, that that line, money is a tool. And um, the the this is a conversation that I have with my father all the time. And growing up, I didn't understand it. But the thing that he often told me was people that have money influence change, right? And with money comes power. Um, so to me, money was not about, you know, buying cars or buying, uh, you know, physical uh, objects. Uh, uh, it was about making a difference in your society, right? And that's how I see it today. And that's how that's why I believe in the power of financial literacy, because, uh, you know, the, if we want people to influence, have influence in their community, they have to have the wealth to do it. And, you know, especially in a capitalist society, that's the only way to do it. Um, so how we could how could we level the playing field so people can have equal power? or you know, uh, to, to influence change in their economy. And it's not just a select few uh, making that impact in their local economy. So that, that's one uh, advice that I got about you know, money's a tool and with it comes power. And then the other thing is, if you can count pennies, you can count millions, right? So start counting pennies and those are the marginal differences that eventually will add up to counting millions. Uh, we always talk about you know winning the lottery, hitting the home run. How do you make money quickly? How do you get rich by 30? Well, you know, it starts with being 18 and saving that first 50 cents, right? But if we don't teach people how to save that 50 cent, how are we gonna teach them to save $50? How are we gonna teach them to save $100? So start marginal with marginal uh, you know, increments. Um, so, you know, that's, that's how I tackle my own personal finances. I'm, I'm counting the pennies because, um, I want to count the millions. Yeah. Something I think about is that like, if I go back to when I was in my early twenties and teens, we always talked about like car stuff. Oh, I'm going to get a new car. I'm putting money in my car. Then when I became a teacher, my first year of teaching, uh, all my friends were buying their first like starter homes. So it was like, oh, a lot of talk about gutters and drainage issues. And I'm like, shut up talking about gutters. And then like, as I got a little bit older, it was about remodels and putting in hardwood floors. And now I'm to the point where everybody's talking about like retirement investments. But the thing is, is that like the retirement investment conversation at 40 is kind of late in the game to start it. Right. That conversation should be happening earlier with kids. And so we're kind of launching into this conversation, but like Brian, I, I actually wonder, can you unpack the term financial literacy? So like when we're having this conversation about financial literacy, like what does that mean to you? Good question. Actually, um, we we don't use it very often because it's just it's just not understood. But we we prefer financial capability, right? So the ability to 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 put knowledge into action, um, and for, you know, for us, we recognize that 
most of our students are making financial decisions today. And the implications of those decisions are even more significant for kids who are living in poverty. And, you know, we, I think we, we need to make sure that, you know, everyday people and lawmakers uh, understand that this is not a class for just the future. It's a class for now for many of these kids that are working, they're paying taxes, they have the opportunity to open kitty IRAs and begin investing for their future. They have to make some of the single most important decisions of their life that will have compounding consequences throughout it as teenagers, whether it's going to college or not, and then how much to borrow if they do, or do they buy their first car or perhaps open an IRA and begin investing. These trade-off decisions are real and the kids that who, who want it, who are living in incomes um, of, of low, lower income environments, those are the kids that oftentimes have the grit and the passion to begin to building wealth now. Because in my experience where I taught, those kids, they don't take things for granted. Those kids are thirsty, thirsty for more and not just to learn, but to take what they're learning and apply it to their lives now. There's two tracks that I think about when I hear like this topic discussed that people respond when talking about students. And I'd love both your thoughts on this. Like track one goes, how can you expect students who are struggling to be thinking about like long-term stuff and thinking about the future and delaying gratification when like their basic life needs aren't being met, yada, yada, yada. And so like having these conversations is like not useful or helpful, helpful to them in the space. And then conversation number two I hear that's kind of dismissive of this is that like you're imposing capitalistic values on a community who's actually like on the business end, the wrong end of capitalism and like capitalist exploitation. And so I, I'm sure you've heard those things before. How do both of you respond to that? Well, I, I, I first want to make sure that folks know that um, financial literacy or financial capability is not a silver bullet, right? In order to have a healthy economy, um, we need uh, fair regulations. Um, we need a system that helps folks from all different income levels and in all different neighborhoods. Um, but we also need to empower them to make financial decisions. And one without the other, I don't think works works very well. Um, but I, I also think that it's important that um, folks recognize that although, you know, the, the thought of changing a system to be more equitable is, is in, for most of us um, exciting and, and hopeful, um, that, that is more of kind of esoteric thinking, unfortunately, when it comes down to individual people. But as teachers, um, the difference that can be made with students right now at this moment is real and salient. And those are the kinds of decisions that we have to decide we're going to make in classrooms. What material are we going to use? What kinds of lessons do we think are meaningful for students right now? And I've seen, and I taught at a Title I school, students who were on the wrong end of capitalism. And um, you could argue being exploited, but yet they saw for themselves that they had real opportunity to take what they were learning and apply it because there still are tools out there that can be used to make sure that they're in an environment when they're older because of those singular decisions that allow them um, that to, to maybe make those, those pennies add in, up into millions and make change happen. Yeah. Brian, uh, not Brian, sorry. Abdullah, how about you? How do you respond to that? 
And so, first of all, thank you for asking this question. It's a it's a deep question. Um, Brian mentioned something that you know this is not a silver bullet. There are systemic issues in our society. Financial literacy education is not going to solve it. From you know, I, I'm going to be professor here for a second, play my role, and I'm going to go to the the economics of it. Right. So in economics, we believe that people make the best decisions for themselves in a capital society if they have as much information as possible, what we call full information. What we know is, and, and to go back to your earlier question, what is financial literacy? My research is on the variation of financial literacy across race and demographic groups. And what we know is access to financial literacy education is not equal, right? Some people, and it correlates with race, and resources at their schools have more financial knowledge and financial literacy. Um, so what can we do to level the playing field at least to give people information for them to do what's best for them? And I'm you know, explicit about making that statement. What is best for them? Uh, one of my issues in this financial literacy uh, world and the people you know, pushing the envelope on financial literacy education is we automatically start to talk about financial behaviors. And we assume that there are some financial behaviors that are better than others. And that's a subjective statement. I'm not comfortable telling people that, you know, you have to have a retirement account. No, that's a choice, right? But with that choice, there comes trade-offs. Are you aware of those trade-offs, right? If I have a plan of, you know what, I don't want to save any money for retirement. I want to put all this money into real estate and then that's going to be my retirement so i don't need a 401k that's my choice right but in the research on financial literacy it assumes that if you don't have a retirement account and you haven't saved for a retirement account then you are uh financially illiterate or you you don't have the financial capabilities so sometimes when we're you know there's the financial knowledge and then there's the financial behaviors the financial knowledge we could examine and measure but I'm not comfortable with telling people what are the right financial behaviors. These are subjective, they're individual based, but I want people to know what they're doing and why they're doing it. And that's where I believe the role of financial literacy is, to teach them the concept of trade-offs and allow them to navigate the market, the ever-changing market, for them to make the inf informed decisions that are best for them. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that what you're both saying make, make me think, makes me think about is, is that Talent is distributed equally through people groups and through communities, but opportunity is not. Right. And so there are many low-income students who actually have very industrious, very uh, entrepreneurial like energy, but they do not have the same access to opportunities to engage that and then also don't have the same access to information. That's something I always think about as well. I, I wonder from both of you – So. If we want to center, center this conversation on like education and what's happening in schools, although there's some, a lot to be said about adults later on, I think, uh, who are some places, some states, districts, schools, sites who are doing this really well? And like, what are they doing well? So I guess the, the best way to answer that um, question is to first um, support what Abdullah was saying, that there is a significant inequity in access to personal finance. So we we have hired um, Dr. Carly Urban and others to survey the states. Um, and when I say that, they literally looked um, at, I think it's 90% of high school catalogs 
of what they are offering. So we we don't just look at legislation because most of the country is determined what what is taught is determined at the local level. Um, we've div- we have been able to dive into you know, almost every single high school. And that through that data, um, there's some alarming statistics. For example, um, only one in 22 students where there's a population where 50% or more are living in poverty and there's primarily black and brown students, only one in two are required, one in 22 are required to take a personal finance course. And that is, that is significantly more than or worse um, than the national average. Uh, so you, as, as you both had mentioned, there is a significant inequity um, to access and personal finance. Um, the, the states that, that are doing it well right now are um, obviously Utah um, has a strong requirement, right? They have a semester long requirement devoted entirely to personal finance. Uh, there are requirements that uh, are in place for teachers to ensure that they are, are content experts in the area. Uh, Virginia um, does a really great job. Um, Tennessee um, has a strong requirement. Missouri, uh, we have um, a, so we have on our website a, an interactive where you can actually um, click on every single school district in the United States to see what access level they have. Do they have a semester requirement? Do they have a, uh, a simply an elective or is it embedded um, in, in other classes? Um, so you can see for yourself that um, across the country, it's very uneven. And you can see also through that map and, and you can trace it to poverty that unfortunately there is a significant disconnect between the amount of students receiving an education, the amount of students not receiving a financial literacy education in areas of poverty. This stresses me out already, man. This stresses me out. Okay. <laughs> so I, I will. Yeah, please. I will chime in here. I, you know, so when we look at financial literacy and quote unquote, who's doing it well, I look at it from the policy standpoint, which Brian talked about, right? So what has the state expected? Because educators, districts, superintendents all respond to requirements, right? Um, So the states that have a financial literacy mandate, it's great. I love it. Unfortunately, most of these financial literacy mandates come without any funding. So it's an expectation, a penalty without a reward. Um, In the state of Kentucky, and I'm going to talk about the work that we're doing at Northern Kentucky University Center for Economic Education because I believe, and I'm biased, but I believe that we're, we're facing a problem and we're trying to be innovative about it. So state of Kentucky a couple of years ago said, you know what, we're going to jump into this financial literacy game. We want our students to have financial literacy education. And you're seeing this across the United States. It's the new hot word, everybody or phrase, everybody wants to be part of financial literacy. Uh, Unfortunately, at times, I think it's more show than actual, um, you know, initiatives. Um, So in the state of Kentucky, they introduced it. Uh, into the General Assembly uh, as a, a legislation. By the time it came, came out of the process, the, the mandate had gone from a personal finance class to by the time students graduate in 2025, they have to have a financial literacy program. Well, what the heck's a program? Is it a day? Is it two days? Is it a month? Nobody knows, right? So how are schools going to react to a mandate that nobody's measuring, but the expectation exists and nobody's funding? So what we've done at Northern Kentucky University is like, all right, so how do we create the carrot? 
right? There's, we have to create a carrot to get people, educators trained to teach, uh, to, to learn about financial literacy and teach it. And then how can we maintain the credibility of the content? So all schools are producing the same content and it's in line with the standards. So, and, and you know, we have a five-year plan right now where we're at though, is we've introduced a general education financial literacy course. And this is really important because once you introduce a general education financial literacy course, that means you could open it up to high schoolers as dual credit, right? And high schoolers now can take this course at their high school if we train their high school educators. They earn college credit, they meet the financial literacy mandate, and they earn college credit at a much cheaper rate. So now they're getting career ready and workforce development ready. Uh, schools love it because uh, they get rewarded for how many college credit courses they have on their campus, on their school districts. Educators love it because now they're trained and they're specialists. Their superintendents and district administrators see them as a special educator, right? Um, so we're giving credentials across the board. Now, let me tell you where this goes wrong. The schools that could afford to have an educator that is focused on financial literacy education are correlated with the districts that have higher income per zip code, right, for the zip code. So we have equity issue. And one thing that I'm working on right now is how do we get these programs to schools? So we're looking at sponsoring educators and funding the schools directly for financial literacy education through sponsorship and fundraising to increase equity and access uh, across the board. So who's doing it right? I don't think there's one place that's doing it right. There's small little nuggets of wisdom across the United States. Um, as far as training educators, Next Gen Personal Finance is doing an amazing job. As far as creating curriculum and content, they're doing a great job as well. So I'm excited to see Brian here to, to highlight those things. As far as getting courses into schools, I think uh, we're doing a great job at NKU Center for Economic Education. Not, oh, I'm no, really, uh, yeah, Abdullah brought up such a, a great point about um, the fact that this can be a dual enrollment class and that we're starting to see that in Michigan, but also that oftentimes when this legislation is introduced in other states, it dies on the vine because it's unfunded. Um, and it's also, it can be a jobs issue, right? So who who's supposed to teach it? There's very hopeful legislation in Ohio that um, is through the house now where there is funding. Um, and then that funding is going to support um, the professional development that's going to be necessary to provide the validation for teachers to be able to teach it. So essentially, I could be any licensed high school teacher that obtains the validation. And more importantly, um, this legislation has been a true partnership between the business community and the teaching community where um, the, all of the people involved have, you know, are coming from the right place, want to see it written the right way. So the validation is actually going to be designed by representatives from different teacher associations working with the Ohio Department of Education. So it'll probably be some professional development and then, of course, um, some sort of certification and you know, what we what we have found at NextGen is that teachers are starving for it. Wrap, wrap your mind around this. COVID hits in March. And from March until December, we delivered 120,000 hours of professional development. Think about that. 
Teachers are literally teaching through hell right now. I know it. I went through it when I ended my career. They're teaching from home. They're depressed. Their students are depressed. They're in school sometimes wearing masks, and they're still coming to professional development because they care a lot, and they know that this is meaningful for their students. I'll note that I asked who's doing this well, and at no point in this conversation did my beloved Washington State come up, and that makes me sad, honestly. All right. So we'll take a break here. When we come back, what I want to talk about is what does a good financial literacy or financial capability education look like for you all? And then also I want to talk about some adult learners and some things that maybe adults should be learning and maybe give some resources or ideas for them too as, as well. So we'll be back. This is Nate Bowling, host of the Channel 253 podcast, Nerd Farmer. When I'm not listening to podcasts, I'm listening to audiobooks and I choose Libro FM. Libro has all the books I'm looking for with a low monthly subscription, and I'm not enriching the pockets of a certain billionaire when I use them. Here's some great read slash listens I want you to try out on Libro. If you're an activist, check out Stacey Abrams' book, Our Time Is Now. We owe her so much after November. The least you can do is listen and hear what she has to say. For the woke or aspiring woke, check out Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. It's a revelation about our country's social system. And for the nerds among you, my people, if you haven't read The Three-Body Problem, you owe it to yourself to start right now. The entire trilogy will take you places you've never been in science fiction. Libro's over 150,000 books in their catalog, so if those aren't right for you, you'll find something you like. Listeners of Channel 253 can start the service with a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter the code Tacoma. And we are back. Thank you very much for downloading this episode today. This is an important conversation about financial literacy. And I think that this is representative of what we do on the show. We have conversations that aren't going to get airtime and space elsewhere. Like there just is not a super big audience in mainstream media for hour long conversation about financial literacy. And that's one of the reasons why we kind of are where we are as a society. And so if you believe in this show and you're enjoying what you're hearing, I'm going to ask you to consider joining Channel 253 as a member. Channel 253 is a network of podcasts based in Tacoma, uh, telling stories like this, having interviews like this, and our work is worth supporting. If you join Channel 253 as a member, you get access to our member-only Slack and member-only events. And the member-only Slack is always a fascinating place. Uh, As of our current recording, there's all sorts of conversations right now about what's happening with the Pierce County Sheriff Ed Troyer and his uh, encounter with a newspaper delivery person on January 27th, which has made national news. And if you're like, wait, what, what? The T is in the Slack. So if you like what you're hearing and you want to join, it is channel253.com slash membership. A membership is $4 a month or $40 a year. All right, let's get back to it. So we're talking about financial literacy in K-12, and I'm a classroom teacher in my 15th year, but I'm wondering, what does this education look like? Like, what's the core knowledge or content or skills or dispositions that are like in a financial literacy course up in a high school today? Uh, Yeah, so I think... um let's kind of approach this from two angles. I think the first is that there are obviously national standards. um, And when you look at our curriculum, we have uh, units that are all encompassing. And most people, when they look at the standards or they look at the units on our website, uh, they will recognize that, you know, it's thorough and that, that it's sensible. Um, and that it, it is the depth of knowledge is, is appropriate. Um, But I want to look at it from through the, through another lens. I think, 
what the research shows is that um, when when students and I'm, I'm just speaking of high school students right now, um, when students are receiving education that they can quickly put into action. So um, bordering on just in time education that is particularly relevant to their lives and that the learning experience is experiential that it is, it is far more meaningful. Yeah. So for example, um, you know, focusing on auto loans is, is a particular importance for a teenager because they all want cars, right? And so you could use that as a nugget to teach credit scoring because they can see through illustrations that the, the better their credit score, the better their auto loan. And hopefully if they paid attention in class, by the end of this class, they're going to realize cars are just a depreciating asset. So I want to avoid that as long as I possibly can. But you don't, you don't like share those things to the very end, right? You want to keep, keep them um, hooked. Or student loans, um, credit cards. I mean, they still can get a credit card at the age of 18. And whether you like it or not, you can't escape a credit score. Once you turn 18, the clock begins to tick. So when you use those um, those strategies in any kind of strong pedagogy, meaning relevant, um, timely, right, um, and and uh, experiential learning, and, and and importantly, like they need to see themselves through that curriculum. All of those things bring into life and are more likely for the students to take action. And and I, Abdullah brought this up before. And this is important. Take an action, meaning what their hope is to do. With their knowledge right this is this is their life their choice their values and we just want to equip them with the knowledge and then the strategies the behavior strategies to be able to reach their own goals abdullah how about you what's a what's a financial literacy course uh that's doing the right thing doing from your point of view yeah so you know once again i'm gonna agree with brian i think uh, you know if, if you were looking for us to debate over here you got two people that think uh, alike and there's a lot of synergies in what we do and what we believe in experiential project-based learning are important aspects of a well-rounded financial literacy education uh the, the issue and before i talk about the right way to do it or what i believe is the right way from an educational perspective the wrong way to do it is to give people checklists Right. This is what you do when you go shop for a mortgage, because people then memorize checklists. It might make them feel at ease, but it's not fundamentally correct because markets change. Things change. We want to teach people how to navigate an ever changing landscape. The world that people are navigating today looks very different than six months ago, than a year ago. If I gave people a checklist last year, it's obsolete today. Right. So what I want to teach my students and the people that go through my program is how do you read the data? How do you understand what's happening in the economy? Where do you see opportunities? How do you negotiate for a job? Well, you know, when unemployment rates are really low, it's a good time to negotiate for a pay raise. When they're really high, it's not a good time to negotiate for a pay raise. So allowing them to understand what's happening in the market. As far as standards and content, I mean, we've all agreed that there are roughly six areas in which we want to cover in a financial literacy course. Uh, career, education, income, that's one, credit, debt, uh, decision-making around money management, so that's the budgeting, savings and investment, and then we like to add money in the economy, so the role of Federal Reserve and things of that sort, and then insurance and risk management. Now, the place that we differ in uh, Center for Economic Education in Northern Kentucky, what we do is we want to talk about the, uh, the role of this content or this knowledge 
in influencing society. So I cannot talk about negotiating for wages without talking about the racial wealth, wealth gap or the racial income gap or the gender income gap, right? Um, if I talk about taxes, I can't just say taxes are things that come out of your paycheck. What do taxes go towards? Right. So one of my issues in looking at what's happening around the, the United States right now is we always assume that paying more in taxes is bad. Right. But at the same time, we're like, hey, we need these covid vaccines to be re released as fast as possible. Well, who's paying for it? Right. So we, we have a society of individuals uh, that, you know, believe that taxes are always a bad thing, but never think about the pro aspect of taxes and, uh, uh, you know, a, a government that that provides. So I believe in the general education component of financial liter literacy, not just the how to, but the why. Why does it matter? How is this going to impact your life? How is it going to impact your neighbor's life? Right. Get to people thinking about their role in society. Yeah, I feel like there's this underlying thing that I just want to just put out there that like financial literacy and progressive politics can coexist. And there's this 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 thing where a lot of folks who I really care about, frankly, like don't want to have financial literacy conversations and, and don't want to focus on this topic because like they think it's selling out the progressive values. But like if you don't have these conversations with yourself, your loved ones, with your children, with your students, then you're setting them up to basically be preyed on down the road. <laughs> um, something that I, it's stuck out to me that I've been tracking since COVID started is the, how adults are getting educated about financial literacy. Like we're seeing the, the whole like Reddit game stock meme stock thing going on. And then right below there, there's like the Robin Hood penny stock people who are trying to cash in. And then there's like the super like boring ETF guys where the answer is always VTI or VOO. And then like YouTube is filled with all these, um, you know, just Joe Schmoes who are popping up right now with advice. And so I, I, I just wonder this, of all the folks out there doing adult financial education, and I shouldn't say adult because like there's always like a 14-year-old kid with like, I mow lawns and I have 50 bucks, what should I do with it? But like, who do y'all mess with out there in like the wider world of financial education? Uh, Abdullah, do you want to you take that one? I, I'll jump in here. I, I've got I've had some hot takes on my Facebook account and on my YouTube <laughs> channel coming out soon is going to be a whole video component of this. Um, so I believe the the education, adult education, financial literacy uh, market is a lot of um, superstars that create um, a fan base and not are, are not necessarily educating their folks, but they're giving them that whole steps process, right? And when I said steps, I think you know who I'm talking about, right? And, name and, names. And, and, name and, names. Yeah, so name names. I'll, I'll name names. I really have a, a difficult uh, time understanding the Dave Ramsey model, right? It just does not work. It works for a select few, but it's not financial literacy education. Right. What it is, is it's a it's a path out of financial uh, ruin that people got themselves into. It's not education. Right. So it works for some people that went down the wrong path and debt was good for them. But whenever you start a conversation, you tell people that debt is bad. You're creating a whole uh, group of individuals that are going to be misinformed, that are not going to learn how to leverage debt to create opportunity for them. So if you, I tell my students, hey students, you are really horrible by having student loan debt, 
you're, you're ruining your lives, guess what? They'll never get an education. But that's the advice that's being given, that you should never have student loan. Work during the summer so you could pay off your, your, well, that's not how the world works today, right? So I want students and individuals and adults to know the fundamentals of it. Um, and honestly, I don't see anybody out there that's educating on the fundamentals of the whys, what happens. You get a lot of people telling you what to do, right? So go buy the game stock, right? Uh, game, game stop stock. Why? What are the fundamentals? And I had students, uh, I have students every semester stop by after class like, Dr. A, what do you think about Bitcoin? I don't know what Bitcoin is, right? There's no fundamental value to Bitcoin or GameStop. So I'm not going to invest in it. I might gamble. Let's call it a gamble if you like, right? Then put, some, you know, if you're a gambler and that's part of your life and your entertainment bucket, put some money aside every month that you gamble with. Buy some random stocks, but don't call it investing, right? So that that's the issue that I have. And a lot of people tell you how much money they made, but they never tell you how much money they invested, right? So, I mean, if I if I invest a million dollars, yeah, I could make twenty thousand dollars in one day, right? But nobody talks about that expense side of it. We all they all talk about and show off what their returns are, and they only show you the returns when it's good. They never show you when it's bad. So you know they they're looking for clicks, and that's why I'm investing a lot of time on my YouTube channel just to give the fundamentals of the economics of it, because the the underlying part of it is. You know, there's always economic theory behind what's happening. If you don't understand the economic theory, then you can't understand what to do with it. So uh, my hot take is I don't know anybody out there uh, from a social media side that is um, speaking the truth. Uh, they're, they're creating uh, a fan base, which is fine, and they're getting the clicks and the shares and the views, um, but it's not financial literacy education. That's my hot take. And Abdullah, I, I got to say, I got to agree with with every, with so much of what you said. And and I I have to say, you know, when you look at Dave Ramsey, um, I, I look at it as almost like AA for personal finance, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very scripted program that has helped a lot of people who had who were in a financial situation that they couldn't get themselves out of without that. And perhaps it's because they were married and they needed something that was easy to get their spouse on the same page with, or uh, they needed very specific structure that, but very specific structure is not what's appropriate for high school financial literacy. We're trying to teach them how to make choices. And that is very different than taking somebody else's choices that are in a workbook and then having the students memorize those choices when the economy itself is going to be different in three or four years. And, and I think that, you know, Nate, you brought up a, a good point earlier when you were talking about just some of the, the progressive political issues right now. I, I, I would say that the issues that you brought up, I don't, I don't think they're progressive. I think they're human issues. You know, the gender pay gap is real. Racial inequities is real. And I think that like, we need to come to a point in this country where like everybody recognizes that this should not be politics, that this should be a part of something that all of us are doing, whether it's in the classroom or whether it's in our communities. So like next week we have a gender pay gap PD that Yanelli and I are building out that Yanelli is gonna deliver. Um, we have a history of racism and finance, a history of racism and housing professional development that Tori does that is tremendous because 
unless our teachers understand that history, they can't understand some of the students they're teaching. And that has to be where we all get someday. Stop with the noise and just accept that this is a human issue that is right now at red alert and we need to do something about it. Yeah. And, and you talking about the human issue, like it just makes me think about times that I've seen people who I've cared about or been acquainted with who were caught in predatory situations. Mm. Like I, I, I tell this story to my students. The first credit card that I got, I got on the campus of my university. It was an Amex card and had a stupid interest rate. But I got a free pair of Oakley sunglasses back in 1998 when I applied. And so I applied and I have had that card ever since for God knows why. But like. I got out easy on that. A lot of folks have gotten in really rough, rough situations. I'm wondering, are there any like predatory financial situations that you've seen people in that you want to like spill the tea is wrong on, but like you want to warn people about, about avoiding or, or, or talk about or share? I sold mortgages between 2003 and 2006. <laughs> so I could tell you stories all day. And, and it's That's the reason the that I'm, it's the reason reason why I'm in this this field, because that was right before my PhD. Um, yeah. And, you know, to go back to these, uh, you know, my own personal story is a story of where the, the market did not necessarily reward education. There were systemic issues. I graduated from college in 2002, right after September 11th, right? So as Abdullah Al-Barani, I'm not finding a job. I'm not finding a job. And trust me, I have worked with some employers that have asked me to change my name because I was customer facing. They're like, Abdullah is not going to get you sales. So how about you change your name to Al, right? So let's talk about the systemic issue there. And let's talk about how many resumes of mine were overlooked, not because I didn't have the qualifications, but because it was after September 11th. And, um, you know, you got Abdul Abrani, uh, Arab sounding name. So that's one to go back to what Brian was saying. Financial literacy education would not have helped me get my budget together because I wasn't the problem here. The, the, the society, the market that we were in. So uh, I wished that some of the employers were educated on racial bias that is impacting yeah, their yeah. decisions, Good. right? So as far as the mortgage industry, I mean, it, it was the best lesson <laughs> that I had in my life. 2003 to 2006, I was a recent graduate. I had a master's in, economic, uh, in economics, um, making a lot of money, but making a lot of money because people were just wanting money out of their houses and house values were increasing drastically. I actually had a presentation yesterday and I told uh, the students that I made a lot of money initially in the first year. And then after that, I didn't make a lot of money in the mortgage industry while everybody else was making bank. And the reason being is because when I first started, I had no idea what I was doing. So if a mortgage uh, customer came up to me and said, hey, I want an adjustable rate mortgage and I'm gonna get a 100% uh, loan, they could qualify, I could qualify them. But after a while, I started saying, you know what? I'm learning about this and this is not the best thing for the customer. So the first year I was just doing whatever the customers wanted. After the first year, I'm like, hey, your role here is to educate them what's best for them, right? So this goes back to what's best for the, for the individual. Well, guess how many mortgages I sold when I wanted to be an educator? Zero, because people didn't wanna hear it and there's people out there that are going to satisfy that market need for them. Um, and so I saw a lot of people go upside down a lot of people and it, and it wasn't correlated with income the the richer people were 
the more risk that they were taken, right? So, you know, your doctors, your lawyers, they, they were struggling as well. Uh, the, the issue, and this is where it became emotional to me, is two years, three years into it, um, one of my customers that I had helped early on called me and said, you know what, Abdullah, um, you, you tried to advise us, but um, we went with this uh, loan and now um, we're, we're 60 days late and we need help, right? So this is uh, early 2006, late 2005. And I'm like, I, there's nothing I could do for you because there are no loans right now in the market. I don't want to say that I forecast it, but I saw what was going to happen later on in 2007. That, and I went to do my PhD and sure enough, the market collapsed, not because people were greedy. Uh, well, maybe a little bit of that, but uh, because people didn't recognize that the fundamentals were not right. It just didn't make sense. And some of the housing market issues that we're seeing today, Brian started the conversation with, um, remind me a lot of the financial crisis because I had a friend yesterday tell me that, you know, they put in an offer $32,000 above asking and it still got rejected and they lost the house. Right. So we're talking about 10, 15 percent above asking and people are still losing houses. Fundamentally, it doesn't make sense. It does not make sense. This market is going to come down. How? How fast? When? We'll see. The the what's the predatory lending thing? Oh, I sold mortgages before the crash is such a slap <laughs> on the table. It's like domino. <laughs> Brian, how about you, man? Yeah, so I, I think for me it was uh, I was driving uh, and noticed payday loan places for the first time. This was just following the collapse, and it was a relatively new phenomenon to see so many of them. And uh, I just I didn't understand it, so I decided, well, let me walk in and see what this is about. And uh, you know, I learned really quickly um, how how bad they are. And so I decided, you know what, I I got to take my students on a walk down Wrong Street. So decided to uh, take all my students, throw them in a bus with the with the uh, New York Times, and let's go to the payday lenders and the check cashing places, and and let's have them try to uh, manipulate my students or tell my students um, what they're selling. And and on and we we had uh, like fifty kids and. Um, uh, of that group, um, a lot of my special education students were there. And there was there was one kid in particular who uh, had a, a pretty significant cognitive disability that everybody loved. He would he would hold the door open every morning as the kids would walk in, and everyone would tell him hello. He had this big beautiful smile, and uh, so he he went. And I'll, I'll explain why I brought him up earlier um, in a second. But essentially, we we walk into the auto title loan. Uh, place and and uh, I walk in with a third of my students and and I and I was obviously respectful because a lot of the people that work there, uh, you know that they're not making any real money either. You know they they just need a job and and I just wanted to make sure they understood that I wanted to create an experience for my students that they would never forget and uh, ask for their help and in most cases they would help and so this lady explains an auto title loan to to my students but she leaves out uh, a key part and at the conclusion she she basically told my students, hey, it's a 28% interest rate. So she left out the fact that if you miss a payment, they take your car. And so when I, uh, and I was uh, prodding her for that, she eventually shared it. And then I asked her, what about these third-party fees? Like, oh yeah, well, it adds up to this or that. And it's like, look, we, please, you know, share what, what is it? What's the APR when you calculate those? She said, oh, it's about 1,700%. And there's customers in there. 
right? And so you've got students that are like, oh my God, this is, you know, their, their eyes are wide open. Um, and then we go to a check cashing uh, establishment. So I took a different third of my students in. And one of them was that student with pretty significant disabilities. And he's, he's standing beside me and I ask the person on the other side of the bulletproof glass window, hey, can you explain how your products work? And there was nobody else in there. It's just my students and I. And uh, she, she walks back to the back room to talk to a manager, comes out a few minutes later and tells me, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, but we're just too busy, too busy to talk to your students. So we're walking out and there's my student, of course, holding the door for everybody, big, beautiful smile. And I'm the last one out. And he says to me, hey, Mr. Page, this is where my mom takes me to get my money. His mother had a significant disability too. And I'll never forget just how... Um, it just, that was the face of someone who's being exploited. And it, for me, it struck this just chord in my heart that made me sick that how can another human being do this to someone? And it goes back to the original conversation that you started us with that this is not just a financial literacy issue. There are regulatory issues whether it's in the housing market, the payday lending industry that need addressing, that prevent people from being exploited. Because sometimes no matter how much information you give them, they're not equipped to make the right choices. And what we've all learned is there are bad people in our world that'll take advantage of them. And we need a legal system and a regulatory system that's gonna protect them. Really great point, Brian. I'm going to add some something because this is the conversation that went with uh, the Dave Ramsey uh, comment that I made earlier. So that post that I post on my Facebook, uh, I had a friend reach out to, to me and say, you know, you're, you're a professor. You're being elitist over here. Um, I said, how am I being elitist? He's like, some people just can't control and we need to teach them, give them the steps. And, and that started a conversation about the role of payday loans or cash checking. And this person said, are you for them? Do you believe that they need to exist? I was like, actually, I do, right? Because if you look, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. And in the neighborhood that I grew up, there was no branch close to me, no banking branch close to me. But there were a whole lot of check cashing uh, opportunities, right? And if you're thinking about who's cashing these checks, it is correlated with their employment status. They cannot take the time to go find a bank. They at times lack the transportation, right? So the, these are the systemic issues. Why are the banks not available there? Well, you know, we need regulation and that's, you know, why the Community Reinvestment Act exists with banks to get them to invest in, in the communities that would be underserved. So the, the check cashing gets a lot of uh, bad rep, but what's the alternative, right? The alternative, somebody can't cash their check because they, that doesn't exist. Now, the question I ask is, what's the role of the employer here? Has the employer talked about you know, direct deposit? Have they provided? And a lot of employers still don't provide direct deposit, right? So think about those systemic issues who are the employers that are not providing that? Who are their employees? And how does that impact society? And one reason that I love financial literacy education is it gets employees asking those questions of their employers. Why do we not have direct deposit, right? And um, tells them the power of asking for, you know, going back to money is power, uh, gives them the power to ask the questions to change the community in which they live in. Because like Brian said, if they don't have that power, 
um, the change is not going to happen. We have to rely on government to regulate it. And sometimes that's asking too much. For sure, for sure. I think I want to leave it there. Uh, if folks want to follow your work and see more of your thinking about this and how you're making a difference in the world, uh, where should they look? For next-gen personal finance, go to ngpf.org. And, and for me, the best way to contact me is Twitter at Dr. A. Albarani or my YouTube channel, same thing, Dr. Abdul Albarani. You should get to it. Reach out. I would love to talk to anybody and provide resources. I want to honestly and sincerely thank you both for coming on the show. Uh, one of the most transformative moments in my life is when somebody sat me down and explained the rule of 72 to me mm. and the idea that like, Money invested at 1% will double in value in 72 years, but money invested at 10% will double in value every 7.2 years. And so essentially they explained to me that in my life as a worker, I have four periods of about 7.5 years in which I'm going to double my savings. And like, that's how I need to plan for the future. Like somebody explained it to me when I was like 18 and I was like, I didn't know the math behind it. I didn't know the calculus behind it. Like compound interest is still magical to me, but like that changed my life. And I hope that somebody who's listening to this can have the same experience from one of you all. So thank you very much. Thank you for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Wakanda forever, y'all. Wash your damn hands, wear a mask, and prosecute the police that killed Manuel Ellis. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Thanks for having us, man. Thank you for having us. This This was great. Could we do this every week? Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.